Last night, Mrs. Otis Brown podcast and I watched High Noon, the great 1952 Gary Cooper, Grace Kelly film. It's a good one. You know, a few years ago, I'm not really sure why, but we went on a we went on a kick and watched a ton of westerns, hundreds of them. Uh, you know, the western had a resurgence a few years ago. It always is having a resurgence. It not only is the most enduring American genre, I think, even more than the gangster film, which is somewhat related to it. Um, and I think there's no American genre that more completely shaped um, our national identity or is more important to our sense of Americanness than the Western. I think that's kind of undeniable. You know, I'm ambivalent about the Western. I love them. I love these movies, and I still watch them. And as I said, I've watched hundreds of them. But I don't think you can be someone who uh, has a critical eye for things and watch hundreds of them without coming to the conclusion that the one thing that unites the, quote, good guys and the, quote, bad guys is they're both really, really comfortable with murder as an alternative to, you know, the justice system. And you got to wonder what that means for a culture that's raised on these things and continues to come back to them and and love them. Richard Slotkin's great book from the 70s, Regeneration Through Violence, takes this up and, and traces the roots of the Western, you know, back to some Puritan origins, not surprisingly. The modern Western, though, probably ta traces its roots to Edward Wheeler's Deadwood Dick, Nostalgia for and mythology about the West uh, spread and co-evolved with the West itself. And when all the buffalo were dead and all the rangeland was fenced off, uh, these people went to work in the Wild West show and then later in the movies. So there's a circular logic to the culture industry relative to the West. And of course, like most good stories that get told in literature or particularly in the movies, um, you know, the gunfighter story had virtually nothing to do with cowboy culture. People killed each other, no doubt, but people didn't square off in the street and shoot at each other like a duel. Uh, almost never, actually. And uh, I think that the life of the average cowboy out on the range was a hard cold, wet, sun-baked, lonely experience that would make a terrible movie. The question of what the West means to the American character, though, is a particularly compelling question after the Civil War. A lot of displaced Southerners move out through Arkansas, Oklahoma, into the West at the same time that the U.S. government is, is prosecuting a total war in the Comanche by killing off all of the buffalo and replacing them with cattle. So there's work out west. You don't have to go home, uh, you know, in defeat, and you can attempt to, uh, you know, establish a new cultural identity for yourself that's not uh, constructed along a north-south axis as American identity had been previous to the Civil War. And also everyone had one of these newfangled revolvers and they didn't hesitate to use them. They were habituated to that kind of violence through the Civil War, I would guess. And the conventions of the post-war Western seemed to, to coalesce around that time period. Um, though I would also say that the anti-Western 
that challenges those conventions is nearly as old as the Westerns that established those conventions. The Clint Eastwood film Unforgiven from the 90s, I think, is a brilliant interrogation of this cycle of mythologizing um, and unraveling that we're talking about. I mean, the it's an East Coast writer trying to get the, quote, real story. And turns out these legendary gunfights were just uh, drunken murder sprees where one drunk psycho shoots the other drunk psycho in the back while they were sitting at a card table or something. The, I'm going to meet you out at out in the street at high noon and shoot it out with you is a is a pure fabrication um, that comes out of a fantasy of uh, what the Southern culture of dueling was about. And in that respect, I mean, you know, courthouses in the South still have dueling grounds adjacent to them. I mean, there were far more duels fought in Kentucky than there were in Deadwood. In any case, uh, the films are generally about a psycho with a gun on our side is a good psycho with a gun. Clint Eastwood, you know, Clint Eastwood, starting with, you know, the Fistful of Dollars and, and that trilogy, um, I think, plays complicated uh, Western heroes who sort of uh, defy at a certain level the the stereotypes or challenge the conventions of the genre to a certain extent. Um, you know, his his uh, film Pale Rider from the 80s is just uh, a little more explicit version of Shane, the great 1953 film starring uh, Alan Ladd. In Shane, you know, a, a quote-unquote ex-gunfighter shows up at a farm tries to go straight or whatever, tries to get out of the gunfighter game. And the farmers are being tormented by bad men. So Shane kills the bad men and then rides off into the sunset. And they're like, oh, thank you, Shane. You saved the farmer with your noble sacrifice. It's all very romanticized. It's a good movie, too. I mean, I fall for the genre. I'm not, you know, being just hostile to it here. But it's interesting. So in Pale Rider, which is the same kind of storyline, the Clint Eastwood character shows up and he's dressed as a minister. And they're like, oh, he's a preacher. And then he, you know, and then he displays his genius for violence very quickly. Right away, he's uh, he's at the house and he's changing and he's got basically a circular pattern of bullet holes right in his back. It's like they're all a halo around his heart and they didn't kill him. But somebody unloaded a wheel gun in his back and he survived it. And instead of them saying like, I don't know if it's consistent for a minister to also be a psychotic killer, they're like, yeah, this guy's charmed. And his gifts for murder become clear right away. There's a, I don't even remember the name of the movie. I just remember this this clip. Ed Harris is in it. They're looking for a, a guy who's supposed to be a good guy and protecting the town, but he's killed a bunch of people and they're trying to track him down. This isn't a, a Western. And, uh, and uh, he says to the person who's like kind of lying for him, he's like, if he's such a good guy, tell me why he's so good at killing people. 
So however we feel about these characters at the end of the day, the one, you know, material truth is that they're better at killing people than the people who are explicitly enthusiastic killers. I mean, I guess the, the deal is if um, they have right on their side and they're reluctant killers, then uh, we feel okay about it. I mean, it, uh, we have permission to indulge our own revenge fantasies uh, when we're given this veneer of, of doing good uh, as a backdrop for those killings. It's very Puritan, and I guess this is where Slotkin kind of takes us, if I remember, I haven't read that book in years, but, you know, uh, God will sort out the righteous from the wicked through violence, and the the righteous will be the most violent. That's the whole message of the Western, I guess, for the most part. So in High Noon, you know, there are four hired gunmen or, you know, whatever, professional pistoleros who come to who come to kill the Gary Cooper character. And uh you know, I mean I, I don't I don't think I need to tell you. It's not giving away the plot to say that uh he kills all of them. Actually it's really interesting that Grace Kelly Grace Grace Kelly's backstory is that somehow we're not really sure exactly what, but her uh, father and brothers were killed through, you know, Western violence. And she becomes a Quaker, and she thinks that if she can change her religion, she can change her fate. So she just picks the religion um, where people are pacifists. It's also strange, like, it's there's no there's no sense of, like, how they got together or how this marriage was formed. They just She just shows up, and they're getting married, and they're going to leave. And uh, she has to decide whether to stick with him or not. She can just leave when he decides to stay and fight Frank Miller and his gang. But instead... She decides to stay, and her staying has a lot to do with Will Kane, the Gary Cooper character's ex-girlfriend, I guess, Mrs. Ramirez, played by Katie Gerardo. It's an interesting dynamic going on there, too. But anyway, she wants to make the distinction that Will Kane is a man and the other people are boys. Her current boyfriend is uh, Kane's deputy, played by Lloyd Bridges. And Katie Gerardo goes into a lengthy uh, analysis of why he's a boy and Gary Cooper is a man. So Grace Kelly decides to stay and she ends up being you know, used as a human shield and nearly killed at least, or worse. And then she ends up shooting one of the pistoleros. It's interesting, too, because she shoots him in the back through the window, which, you know, in the, in the Western, in the Western arrangement is apparently film arrangement.
is apparently off limits. You know, uh, Kane is walking around waiting for Frank Miller to like draw on him, and then he outdraws them. He shoots Frank's brother Ben. Like I don't know. Why would you just go knock him on the head and throw him in jail? The film's an interesting commentary on jail, though, because Frank Miller has been sent up to the, you know, prison by hom for homicide. And then there's a, a long conversation about how it doesn't do any good to lock people up because, you know, Eastern judges will just let them out. And the only way to solve a, a real problem in the West is to kill somebody. I mean, so so... It's weird because there are all these codes about when you can shoot somebody and when you can't shoot somebody. And yet, what they're really talking about here is, despite the fact that he's wearing a badge, is, a, is an extra-legal justice system. These guys got sent to prison and it didn't do anyone any good, and now they're out again. So the only way to solve the problem is to kill them. And more to the point, you know, even your Quaker wife is implicated in that kind of violence. And, uh, you know, she has to be a murderer to, um, I don't know, to marry Cain at least, to be an American, to uh, coexist in the world. I mean, really, it's a complete repudiation of the idea that we're a nation of laws, or at least that we're a nation of laws that have, uh, you know, a justice uh, system on one side of it rather than a revenge mechanism built into it. All kinds of problematic mythology that's rising up at the time of uh, America becoming a post-war superpower, world's policeman, and all of that sort of thing. You know, I mean, not to put too fine of a point on it, but, uh, you know, even if that narrative works for you relatively well to explain um, or, you know, to understand our participation in the world wars, both of them, it's fairly difficult to apply it to uh, Korea and Vietnam, which are really the wars we fought um, that were fought by a generation of men who grew up on a steady diet of these films. These films are really interesting, though. They're, they're brilliant on their own. I mean, you know, the, the filming of High Noon is amazing. There are some of the most famous shots in all of film. There's a pan shot that then shifts to Kane all alone. He's in a town where no one will help him. He's faithfully protected the town and they won't help him. And then he finds himself truly alone. He's the, the last stand, the last guard between the cowering townsfolk and insensate evil. And, uh, that's kind of interesting. The, the, the film also happens in real time. You know, the train is going to come in at, at noon. It's the noon train. And, and when they find out that Frank Miller is going to be on the noon train, we look at the clock and then we start real time at that point. We're probably already in it by then, but we're aware that we're in real time. It's not the first film to do that, but it it could possibly have been the first, uh, you know, really popular and successful film, though, to be in real time. I'm not real sure about that. One of the things that's really interesting to me about the Western is the, the tension between the people who are trying to challenge the genre and the people who are trying to 
embrace it or adopt it uncritically. John Wayne was famous for undoing, basically, the text. Um, you know, he wanted it to be a certain way. I don't know, maybe he had anxiety over the fact that people thought he was a draft dodger. But anyway, he had tremendous influence over the over the text. When they made Charles Portis's great novel, True Grit, into a film in 1969, uh, it ends up a strikingly different film than the novel would suggest. So at the end, uh, Tom Chaney has been killed. Uh, you know, uh, Maddie Ross's father's life has been avenged. She has her arm in a sling, um, and they have some rousing speech about how how the John Wayne character, Rooster Cogburn, is going to be buried in their family plot someday. And he jumps over the fence on his horse and gives a salute, and he rides off into the sunset in the typical Western fashion. But when we look at the novel or when we look at the Coen brothers' great version of the film from 2010, we see that Maddie Ross, 25 years later, she lost her arm. She never married. She's still wearing black as if mourning her father still. She um, goes to see Rooster one last time. He's in a Wild West show becoming a caricature of his former self. They're stuck in that moment of revenge. There's no, uh, there's no happily ever after. There's no redemption. There's just a descent into violence, and it ends the life of the victor as well as the victim in some way. I would say the classic example of John Wayne bending the text to his will would be um, his last film, The Shootist. It's kind of an interesting film, I mean, because it's about an aging gunfighter who has cancer. He knows he's dying, and it's filmed while Wayne is also dying of lung cancer. So Books, the gunfighter, tries to, um, you know, decides to get killed in a gunfight, but he's so good at killing people that he can't get killed. Meanwhile, uh, he's fallen in love with an innkeeper, and her young son, teenage son, Gillum, has been sort of taken in by by books and is looking up to him and admiring him. He's drunk on the Western stories that he thinks books represents in the world. And in the end of the novel, books kills all of the gunfighters who come to have their showdown with him. He shoots one of them in the back with a shotgun. He basically just murders them. And Gillum picks up books' guns, straps them on, and runs out the door with every indication that he's poised to become a more vicious version. And that violence is, is, is carried forward to the next generation and perpetuated. And, you know, it's a cautionary tale that, that the gunfighter days are over, but the extreme levels of cultural violence that we're encouraging are going to continue into the next generation. But John Wayne wouldn't have it that way. He said, I've never shot anyone in the back in my life, and I'm not going to start now. I mean, I think he meant just in the movies. But but anyway, so, so at the end, um, Gillum shoots, one of the, shoots the bartender and saves Books, who's already shot up. 
Books looks at him approvingly, and then Gillum runs out to basically be good. And it's almost like, oh, you have to have killed someone to be good. Which is really appealing to uh, individuals and a nation um, who had, you know, just fought wars. Anyway, the Western is still an important part of our national conversation, so I hope you enjoyed uh, thinking about it right now and taking a break from other global concerns to do it. Hey, friends, thank you for listening. I appreciate it as always. I miss you. Um, Stay strong. Things are hopefully starting to get better a little bit. Let's keep moving in that direction. I'll see you next week. Bye.